Welcome back. This is Ryder Richards. Huge news, everyone. Let's think about it. Ranked number 234 on Philosophy Podcasts in December. That's right. There's only 235 Philosophy Podcasts out there, but still, I wanted to thank you for your support and for walking with me on this journey into how our brains work and maybe how we can be a bit more reflective as people. Also, I'd like to sort of announce that you can read along with us if you want. Elle and I are in the midst of reading William James's Pragmatism and Pluralistic Universe. The texts are broken into these convenient lectures that take about an hour to read, and you can sort of cover one per day if you want to. And then if you like, you can help us plot out our conversation for the end of the month. Links will be on the website. Now, let's tackle part two of Robert Jackal's Moral Mazes. Good Decisions the core of the managerial mystique is decision-making prowess. So if decisions were easy, they would be made by somebody else. So really, it's only the big money, big risk decisions that are looked at to determine your prowess as a manager. Thousands of jobs in the future of the division are on the line. How do you make the call? By your gut. I mean, geez. Which, of course, some people have more than others, right? So your prowess is really your gut S. I mean, they should totally have a trophy of this. I'm sure it'd look like a bowling trophy or something. But um, circling back, of course, the money-making realm of the corporation, as we've discussed previously, it's not rational. This is a political realm. Therefore, it's an appearances realm. No matter how many spreadsheets you can point to to prove your decision was made based on best evidence at the time, eh, that doesn't really matter. Because the rules of managers are, one, Avoid making any decisions, if at all possible. And then two, if a decision absolutely has to be made, involve as many people as you can. And if things go south, you're able to point in as many directions as possible. So pause on that for a second. You rise to authority and power by avoiding decision making. Yes, it is absolute wisdom to stand back and throw others under the bus. And when something goes right, what do you do? Well, you steal the credit so you can project the appearance of being a decisive decision maker who gets results. So you've heard of this moral dilemma, the thought experiment developed by the utilitarians, guys like Peter Singer. Oh, what a nice day to be standing on a bridge watching the idiots play on the trolley tracks with my chubby buddy, George. Oh my God, George, George, there's a trolley coming and there's five people down there on the track not paying attention. We have to stop the trolley, George. Oh my, no, no, George, I can't sacrifice myself. I'm much too thin. The only way to save those people is to sacrifice you by pushing your bulky body onto the track to block the trolley. But George, stop struggling. You're going to be a hero, George. Just sacrifice yourself. Now, in the corporate version of this, no one takes any action. The five people are hit by the trolley, and then everyone blames everyone else for not jumping. Another great day at the office dodging responsibility. Jack L. tells a story that's pretty insightful about this company that had to restore this really large battery, and it was going to cost about $6 million to restore this battery. So you know it's a huge battery, right? But the CEO wanted cash for other investments, and so he just kind of kept ignoring it. And in true no-one-upset-the-king fashion, which is also kind of known as, hey, there's a trolley coming right at us. Shh, he knows it's coming at us, but it puts him in a bad mood. Just stand there and block his view of it. So to survive the political fallout of bringing up reality bearing down upon you, no one brought up the tragedy that was bound to ensue, and in a couple of years, the battery crashed completely, putting the company in breach of contract with all these companies, and then it cost the company over $100 million, maybe closer to $150 million, 
to get themselves back on their feet again. Now, who is at fault for this? Absolutely no one. They just ignored the whole thing, like a fart. It's basically the same principle on a larger scale of when your boss makes a bad joke. You just laugh along or you risk losing your job. From a survival perspective, this makes a lot of sense. The only rational thing to do is not bring up reality. Your precarious political network and all the filthy relations that you maintain, you use to maintain your power and authority and position, well, to force people to choose between you and the CEO is career suicide, facts be damned. So you always go for short-term safety over long-term gain. And who knows, you can probably spin the story in a couple of years to make it sound as if it was somebody else's fault, not the CEO's, perhaps someone who was fired or left the company, and then really it is no one's fault, right? You've shifted all the blame, and you can get on with not making decisions or spreading decision-making out, so why that you're no longer at risk? Thus, there's never any punishment because you don't know who to blame. So your primary gut decision for your survival in a company, who is going to get blamed? Not what will be best for the company or how do we boost revenue or what if this harms the lives of people. It's all about diffusing blame throughout the bureaucracy across the whole family team. I mean, really, doesn't this all sound like the bank bailouts of 2008? Oops, we wrecked the economy and lives of the citizens. Well, you know, it wasn't really our fault. All the kids were doing it. Uh, can we get our bonuses now? Thanks. Blame time. For managers, to be blamed is to be injured verbally in public. And since we know that image is crucial, this is a serious threat to the men and women in management roles. The wise manager knows it has nothing to do with facts or the merits of a case, but it's a socially construed manifestation. And that's born of one-third politics, one-third scapegoating, and one-third you accidentally walked in on George and Janie getting it on in the stationery closet. Sorry, buddy. Wrong place, wrong time. So Jackal illustrates this with a story, which I think is good to understand how it plays out in real-world terms because it's kind of complicated and layered. A CEO takes over, and he wants to reduce financial drag to look better for Wall Street and the board. Once again, appearances over long-term thinking. Now, this company had a natural gas storage depot. Yes, I know what you're wondering, and yes, it did smell like farts. So they had a contract to supply Jonesy, let's call him Jonesy, with gas at a set price. When an energy crisis hits, the price went from 20 cents to $2, which was crazy, and all of a sudden it was really hard to pay Jonesy and blah, 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 and the CEO said, this is a drag on us, get rid of it. And we know from last episode's kind of pyramid politics that when the boss says something, you must jump and show loyalty. And he doesn't want any details, but he's going to take all the credit. So anyway, they sold the natural gas depot to another guy. Let's call him Shady. And since Shady is stuck with the contract with Jonesy, the previous contract, to make up for it, our company says, Hey, thanks for taking this off our hands. We know our long-term contract with Jonesy got us into this mess, but now we want to make a long-term contract with you to purchase natural gas for our other operations at, let's call it, three bucks. Now, this is obviously stupid, but for appearance's sake, the CEO transferred the financial drag on the capital accounts over to operating expenses. And now, the VP under operations is saddled with exorbitant costs that he had no hand in creating. Now, this undercuts the appearance of his competency, because now they're losing money. But of course, the VP can't just say the truth, which is, 
This is because our CEO is stupid and cares more about his own appearance than the good of the company. Because, once again, to criticize your boss, to point out the obvious, is to not be a team player. It's to be disloyal. And then you're never going to find another job because you aren't the right kind of person. In the end, the VP resigned to pursue other opportunities. More corporate speak. Once again, this was no fault of the VP. It's merely the capricious machinations of the corporate world. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But you ask, Ryder, why couldn't they set up this system for tracking responsibility? Isn't this a bureaucracy? Well, yeah, but if you track subordinates, you would also be tracking the top executives. And no one wants that. So as Jack Al says, Bureaucracy expands the freedom of those on top by giving them the power to restrict the freedom of those beneath. In a pure bureaucracy, everything would be tracked. But corporations have a warped bureaucracy in which all systems protect and enable those on top while hindering, demoralizing, and making pawns out of those on the bottom. The top gets away with anything, kind of like Dick Cheney. The less successful in the game of blame would be somebody like a Kenneth Lay or a Bernie Madoff, right? Welcome to the moral maze, a.k.a. bureaucracy was invented by Satan. All hell Satan. On the fast track. In that story about the VP, people in the corporation actually criticized him for not being attuned enough to see the situation and preparing his own scapegoat. See, he wasn't playing the game right. And you see how screwed up this is. If you keep shifting blame and never take responsibility... The goal here is really to outrun your mistakes. Jump up the ladder, and then when the person who replaces you inherits your screw-ups, you blame it on them and you fire them. <laughs> I'm so evil. Bow, yes, bow for the applause of your colleagues. <laughs> now, similar to the story with the battery, you can defer costs for short-term profits or gains. So by running a manufacturing plant, but never doing the right repairs, not replacing the stock, it looks like the plant is generating a profit. Now, this is called milking a plant. And no, it has nothing to do with almond milk. But good-looking numbers get you promoted, and then the next guy has a deteriorating plant that needs repairs and new stock. And of course, a promoted manager, hiding his malfeasance, says, Well, I ran it for years without a problem. Perhaps you just aren't a capable manager. And this sets up what Jack Al calls probationary crucibles in which managers are tested under extreme pressures, reshaping them to make decisions for short-term expediency for their own survival. In the end, the games played for a manager to look good and meet the numbers actually cost the company. It's a parasitic relationship that drains the company rather than keeping it healthy. As one manager says, There is a natural selfishness. People want to make the system work for themselves. And when they get to the top, they can't criticize the system that got them there. Flexibility and dexterity with symbols. As you climb the ladder, the rules of the game are you never publicly criticize or disagree with one another or the company policy. You just wear an agreeable face and use ambiguous language. But when blame time shows up, of course, everyone already has built up defenses and they've already set up their scapegoats. But you have to be cautious because the person you criticize today could be your boss tomorrow. So the organizational contingency requires a sort of circumspect mode of bullshitting. Team, what did you think of the candidates applying for Vice President of National Regional Managerial Administrative Operations? Rutledge has proven to be tactful and quick thinking. What about Smith? 
Smith is meticulous and unusually loyal. All right, we'll promote Rutledge. What? What just happened there? Well, in corporate code, being tactful means you can keep your mouth shut. In quick thinking, it means you're good at inventing plausible excuses. While being called meticulous means you're a nitpicker, and being unusually loyal actually means no one else wants you. But if this somehow leaks out, you can see how the phrasing is ambiguous enough to allow for another, more appropriate meaning to be applied at a later point in time. So along with the blank, agreeable masks that managers must wear, they must also speak in language that is provisional and non-offensive. Hence all the bland codes. Jack L. says the higher you go in the corporate world, the better you need to be with manipulating symbols without becoming attached or identified with them. So when the CEO pushes the new management strategy of creating a more humanistic workplace through No Pants Friday, well, you must be the first to take off your pants because of appearances and loyalty. But also, when this backfires due to Milton getting out of control with his swing line stapler, that's the last straw. You must be seen as somehow not actively participating in the initiative. As one manager says, Where I come from, if you give your word, no one ever questions it. It's the old hard work will lead to success ideology. I'm disadvantaged in a system like this. It's the ability to play this system that determines whether you will rise. And part of the adeptness required is determined by how much it bothers people. One thing you have to be able to do is to play the game you can't be disturbed by the game. And you ask, what's the game? Well, it's bringing home the troops from Vietnam and declaring peace with honor. It's saying one thing and meaning another. It's characterizing the reality of a situation with any description that's necessary to make that situation more palatable to some group that matters. It means you have to come up with a culturally accepted verbalization to explain why you are not doing the exact thing that you're doing. Or, you say that we had to do what we did because it was inevitable, or because the guys at the regulatory agencies were dumb, or you say that we won when we really lost, you say that we saved money when we squandered it, you say something's safe when it's potentially or actually dangerous. Everyone knows that's bullshit, but it's accepted. This is the game. Thus, truth takes a back seat for the imperative of appearances. Adroit talk requiring moral flexibility and dexterity with symbols. And what happens when there's a definite proof to the opposite? Well, of course, you say you were in accordance with the rules at the time. Claim that risk is necessary to make money, while you personally avoid risk by hiding in a bureaucracy. As Jack Al says, you socialize the risks and harms of the corporate industry while privatizing the benefits. The bureaucratic ethic. Jack L. shows the contrast from the original Protestant ethic, an ideology of self-confident frugality and independence. It champions stewardship of responsibilities where your word was your bond, but it also signaled success as God's favor, and that was used to explain away the misery of the poor and the unlucky. What has happened is that bureaucracy breaks apart substance from appearance, action from responsibility, and language from meaning. In the corporate world, your success is not dependent on your efforts, but the whims of your superiors and foibles of the market. There are capricious gods, these top-level executives, riding the waves of an impersonal market, and your salvation is linked to your submission and your willingness to offer pleasing sacrifices in hopes of protection and your fear of expulsion into the wilderness. With survival tied to such a fickle, mercurial fate, 
corporate bureaucracy erodes internal and external morality. It generates its own rules and moral standards primarily through social context. What is fashionable becomes true since everyone is looking at each other for moral cues. But to rise in the ranks, the only virtue to be found is self-interest masked as company loyalty. Two thousand eight, the Great Recession. Jackal has a two thousand nine essay added to the back of Moral Mazes, and it really proves his nineteen eighty eight book prophetic. Corporate culture and bureaucratic ethics expanded into the societal consciousness, and this consciousness was of short term profits with super shady logic. Yet everyone was doing it, so it became conscionable, and it ended up breaking our economy. This is an egregious example of, once again, socializing risk while privatizing profit. And of course, bailing out the banks and finding a few scapegoats while others took a massive golden parachute. This has not changed the ethos of the finance industry. If anything, it proves the protective power of bureaucracy, further encouraging greater and greater recklessness and immorality in the future. Now, if you're thinking of Locke's ideas on law, Really, law doesn't work without punishment. They go hand in hand. And without the rule of law to exercise justice in a society, the social contract is broken. So our government is responsible for the conditions that led to the recession. But they have also internalized this bureaucratic blame game. And they're not owning up to their own responsibility. Instead, they scapegoated the finance industry. While showing the same kind of hubris and lack of insight and blustering rhetoric as any CEO gutting his own company for short-term Wall Street rewards. So this podcast has gone on long enough, so we really don't have time to jump into all of this. But if you're interested in a social moral map that led to the recession, let me know and I'll try to pull together some resources and do a show on it. Also, thank you for listening. Now, if you have a moment, please rate the show. I need to get at least one or two more reviews to get this podcast up to rank 233 in the most boring podcast category. Once again, thanks for your time. Until next week, stay safe.